Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and welcome to this, the eighth lecture in our Rare Book School summer series. Uh, this might be the eighth out of ten lectures, but it is by far uh, not an ordinary lecture for today is the Malkin Lecture, which is the most distinguished lecture that Rare Book School has. The Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography is named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which from 1948 until 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world covering book collecting and research librarianship, as well as used and rare book selling, the journal was consistently full of trade news of interest to dealers, to collectors, and to librarians. In 1984, very early in the life of Rare Book School, which was founded at Columbia University only the year before, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual Rare Book School lecture in honor of her husband, Saul Malkin, recognizing his contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in December of 1985, looking out into the audience I see most of you weren't born in the summer of 1985. And after Saul Malkin died in 1986, Marianne continued to support Rare Book School, both at Columbia and then for many years here at UVA, right until the late 1990s and into the early years of the first uh, part of the century. Um, in 2004 or so, she allowed founding director Terry Bellinger to change the name of the lecture in order to include her name as well because she had been such a staunch supporter. It's a real privilege to honor Saul and Marianne Malkin in this way. They are the largest benefactors to Rare Book School in its history. Malkin lectures over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, the great book designer, Nicholas Barker, Bill Barlow, Bob Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldsmith, Jim Green, Selby Kiefer, Kathy Kyles-Lee, Paul Needham, Bill Reese, Barry Rosenthal, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynne kind of a who's who in the book world. And joining their ranks this year as Malkin Lecturer is the distinguished academic publisher, Jerry Singerman. It's been my privilege to know Jerry now for about 10 years because uh, with John Pollock uh, and with Peter Stolybras, he is the convener of an extraordinary weekly seminar on the history of material texts at the University of Pennsylvania. Imagine sustaining a weekly seminar on material texts for more than 20 years. And it thrives. And it thrives partly, partly because of Jerry's leadership. 
Jerry is the senior humanities editor at the University of Pennsylvania Press, where he acquires books in literary studies, in medieval and modern scholarship, in religious studies and Jewish studies, among a number of other fields. He himself holds a doctorate in comparative literature from Harvard University. I'm pretty sure Jerry is the only person in the long history of Rare Book School to come give a lecture who has published a book co-authored by himself and Dr. Ruth Westheimer. <laughs> it's true. The book is called The Myth of Love, Echoes of Ancient Mythology in the Modern Romantic Imagination. On sale in the back of the room. <laughs> but he, he also wrote Under Clouds of Poesy, Poetry and Truth in French and English Reworkings of the Aeneid, an important book on reception history and refiguring. In April of last year, at the annual meeting of the Medieval Academy of America, in an unprecedented move, Jerry Singerman received the Robert L. Kendrick Cara Award for outstanding service to medieval studies. He is the first and only publisher to be so recognized. And I'd like to read to you the citation that Jerry received on that occasion. The Kara Kendrick Award goes this year to Jerry Singerman, senior editor at the University of Pennsylvania Press. Our committee was struck both by the number and variety of commendatory letters written on Jerry's behalf, each praising different skills that he possesses. For the authors among the group, it is his encouraging openness his encyclopedic memory of past conversations about scholarly projects, his support and expert commentary. To his colleagues at the press, it is the size of his achievement, taking the medieval list from 50 to nearly 300 titles, every one supported by an impeccable docket expertly argued and articulated. His reader's reports are invariably among the most detailed, searching, and valuable, according to his colleagues. And his results, as measured by the number of Haskins and Grundler prizes his books have won, speak for themselves. And last but not least, we of Kara, on behalf of the community, want this award to speak viva, a viva voce word of thanks for work that is too often overlooked and unappreciated, but whose results will live far longer than any of us here today. Ars longa vita brevis, methinks. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure to introduce to you as our 2015 Malcolm Lecture, my friend and esteemed colleague, Jerry Singerman. Well, I want to thank Michael for that overwhelmingly generous introduction. Um, I fear everything will be downhill from there. 
Um, but I also want to, to thank Michael um, for this really wonderful um, invitation, which is a great honor to me. Um, and I would like to thank Jeremy and everybody else who's, who's made this such a, a pleasant and smooth visit. And thank you all for coming after what I know is a very long, uh, long day. Um, can you all hear me? Okay, and do you all have the handout, um, which we'll get to a bit later? Um, okay, I'd like to begin with two texts, both addressing a single problem, one of them purporting to offer a solution. The first came from an article that appeared on the front page of the New York Times, and I'll quote, Hundreds of young scholars around the country are facing this latest obstacle in a glutted academic job market. To get tenure in the humanities and social sciences, it's all but mandatory at some universities, especially the most prestigious ones, to get an academic book published, usually by one of the university presses that are members of the Association of American University Presses, which I'll be referring to as the AAUP. But as financially strained libraries are slashing budgets for books, university presses are cutting back, sometimes drastically, on publishing specialized monographs like doctoral dissertations. The result is a collision between the financial logic of the book market and the ground rules of academia. Some say the conflict is a serious threat to the future of new scholarship at America's universities. Okay, the second text is a promotional video from the University of California Press that appeared a few months ago, and it announces Luminos, a new publishing initiative for the humanities, and this is, this is a video. It's a new day for monographs. New technology platforms and rich opportunities for multimedia content set the stage for much-needed change. For years, there's been a shadow over the future of monographs publishing. Libraries forced to reduce budgets by fewer copies of each book published, which in turn puts financial pressure on publishers, compelling them to publish fewer books. The result? Increasingly limited avenues for getting important work into readers' hands and an unsustainable model for publishing. It's time for a breakthrough. Luminous is our answer. A new open access monograph publishing program from UC Press to open humanities and social sciences research to readers around the world. It combines the same high standards of peer review and editing of our traditional publishing program with the freedom and reach of open access. On top of that, authors can choose to include multimedia content to enhance their work. Open access is a widely accepted model of publishing that gives people free, unrestricted, online access to peer review research and scholarly work. I love this <laughs> and creative commons license, we can make research available to people who need it and give authors control over how it's used. Here's how the Luminos model works. Based on the number of words and images and the use of multimedia, the baseline title publication fee to publish a monograph is $15,000. Those costs are then recouped from a number of sources within the academic community. Academic institutions will contribute $7,500 to the title publication fee. 
authors can secure this subvention from many different sources on campus and beyond. And for authors who need additional help to publish, we have a waiver fund available. As for the rest, UC Press contributes towards these costs, so do libraries that support the program through membership dollars. And finally, some costs will be covered by sales of print copies. Libraries benefit too. They get online access to all Luminos titles, along with cataloging data and enhanced marked records, absolutely free of charge. And that membership we mentioned? Libraries can opt to become supporting members, paying $1,000 a year into a larger pool that directly subsidizes Monograph publication and our author waiver fund. That way, they support the academic community and more research. Luminos is built as a partnership where costs and benefits are shared, creating a sustainable publishing ecosystem that serves the entire academic community and opens monographs to the world. Well, I'm not quite speechless. Um, okay. What I'd like to do this evening is to fill in something of the backstory to the article from which I quoted and this video and use them to think about what has been the dominant model of American academic publishing, what it sprang from, what it looks like at present, and where perhaps it's going. Now, although a full consideration of the above would require parallel treatment of scholarly journals as well as books and would probably require looking at a second California video, which is, I think, even more wonderful, and that's for Calabra, which is their journals program, open access, I'm going to focus this evening overwhelmingly on the books, um, which in the American context really means university presses. And I want to start here with three propositions, okay? One is that university press publishers serve at the pleasure of the academy. We're here because you have wanted and needed us, um, or as I say in my best kind of whiny adolescent voice, we didn't ask to be born. Right? <laughs> okay. Second, although we are nonprofit, we are completely market-driven. And third, we don't shape that market, we follow it. Okay. Now, to give a very brief um, chronology of university presses, um, the oldest American university press is sometimes said to be Cornell, which was founded in 1869. It, however, went out of business in 1884, and then it picked up again in um, 1930. So Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, takes the title of the oldest American university press in continuing operation. Um, it was founded in 1878, is still going strong. Note that 1878 is just two years after the founding of the university itself. Um, there was a whole cluster of university presses opening in, in those decades. So Penn um, 
started in 1890, so it's one of the older ones as well. However, it, it went out of business, started again in 1920, went out of business, started again in 1927, and we've, we've been going ever since. Chicago, 1891, again, one year after the founding of the university. California, 1893. Columbia, 1893. Princeton, 1905. Yale, 1908. Harvard, 1913. Stanford, 1917, and so forth. Virginia was a come lately. Virginia's press was established in 1963. Um, and we can think about that timing, maybe. Okay, by 1957, there were 38 member presses in the AAUP. Um, by 2015, that number had risen to 137. Now, what is the relationship between the presses and their universities? Um, to some extent, it's a public outreach function, I would say. Um, perhaps one can think of it as the precursor to the open university or even the legacy technology behind the MOOC, right? Um, Daniel Coit Gilman, the first president of Johns Hopkins, in describing the press he founded, wrote, it is one of the noblest duties of a university to advance knowledge and to diffuse it not merely among those who can attend the daily lectures but far and wide. Um, still in the earliest stages it was doing this primarily by serving as a house organ or a branding device um, for its home institution. Again, perhaps not very different from continuing education programs or the MOOC um, or whatever kind of brand enhancing role. Um, so the Cornell University Press, that first one, was actually the Cornell Printing Office. It hired its journalism students. It was, it was a practicum. Um, Hopkins, the second press, started by issuing journals that published the research of its own faculty. And that was, that was typical of the university presses in the early days. And um, I was reminded of that again just this past year when Ray Clemens came to Penn to give one of the material text seminars uh, on the Voynich manuscript which is that celebrated and very bizarre artifact of the 15th century that's written in, in a totally undecipherable code um, and it is undecipherable except in 1928 the University of Pennsylvania Press published a book that purported to interpret that work as the cipher of Roger Bacon right and who was the author of that book you know According to the title page, it's by William Romain Newbold, Adam Siebert, Professor of Intellectual and Moral Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania, okay, edited with a foreword by Ronald Grubb Kent, Professor of Comparative Philology at the University of Pennsylvania. Right, so that, that's typical. Okay. Now, what, what I've, I've long thought is that one could argue uh, that the professionalization of the university presses uh, came at the point at which they started separating from their home universities over the course half of the first course of the first half of the 20th century and instead of publishing the like the home faculty they started publishing we started publishing the best scholarship in any chosen field that we could find right um, so what that means is that the American University Press, as we have come to know it, is a pretty odd phenomenon. It's a quasi-independent scholarly press, loosely connected to, but financially underwritten by its home institution, and it was never really assumed, even from the very beginning, that it would be a self-supporting endeavor, financially self-supporting. So now what scholars got out of this, have gotten out of this, um, 
over the past century is, I think, clear. They've gotten access to publication, they've gotten the imprimatur of a major university, and they've gotten publication largely without subvention on their part. Okay? And this is very much in contrast to the European model of scholarly publication, right? Which, where, where it, it resides in kind of independent commercial presses and, and people by and large need to pay to get published. Now, what did the universities get out of this? Um, you know, clearly a certain amount of legitimacy and prestige. Again, think about Hopkins and Chicago starting their presses in their very infancy, within the first year or two of their establishment. Um, as it has developed, major research universities seem to need to have a university press in their portfolio for legitimacy. Um, but universities have also you know, I guess, done good works. Um, and it's been relatively inexpensive um, for the, the institutions. There's, there's a kind of general sense. The larger the press, the smaller the, the subsidy that's required. Um, Penn is a medium-sized press, or it's either a large, medium-sized press or a small, large press. Um, the AAUP breaks things out in, in these ways. And a um, number of years ago, I was on the, um, the board of the faculty club at Penn, and the faculty club at Penn is really nothing more than a lunchtime cafeteria um, in the room that the university-owned hotel otherwise uses to serve breakfast in. Okay, and it came as a shock to me to learn that the university's subvention of the faculty club was about twice its subvention to the press. Okay. Um, so it's cheap, okay. Um, okay, now thinking about the press as, as doing good works and the university is doing good works, and the luminous model that we've, we've just seen, um, it's describing its publishing model as a commons, right? Um, and I would argue that the university presses have traditionally um, operated as a commons, and I would say traditionally, as long as they worked, operated as uh, very successfully as a commons. You had institutions that were sponsoring publication for, again, a certain investment and not covering the entire costs of publication. The institutions that employed the authors covered a certain portion of the cost because by and large we aren't paying authors but authors are being paid in the form of tenure and promotion, salary increases, right? And then the third component in this common um, was the university and college library community that was supporting this publication by buying the books, right? Um, so I, I think it, it's, again, I, the costs and benefits were, were spread out and I think successfully so. Okay, so by 1970, the approximately 100 um, university presses that were members of the AAUP published a total of 2,300 titles a year. Okay? Academic libraries in the early 70s spent an average of 70% of their acquisitions budgets on books and 30% on serials. Okay, university presses in those days counted on selling approximately 1,000 to 1,250, 1,500 copies of every book that they published, largely to the college and university libraries who were the core market. Okay. Now, in the early 70s, as most of you probably know, serials costs started rising, um, especially science and technology serials, and especially those that were published by commercial academic um, publishers. So the, the great 
Satan in all of this is Reed Elsevier. Um, libraries started shifting the allotments of their acquisitions resources and we, the university presses, could no longer count on those numbers for automatic library sales. Now the publisher's response um, was actually a pretty stupid and short-sighted one, I would say. Um, probably a sign that most university presses were not directed by business people in those days. And it seemed to me that we, we thought that if we um, were publishing, if we were selling fewer copies of each book that we um, were publishing, we could make up for the difference by publishing more books, right? Um, so over the course of the 70s, virtually every university press doubled in size. As the decades passed, they doubled and doubled again. Now, I mean, this is like a totally stupid thing to do because we're responding to kind of limited resources by making them stretch further. Okay, so 1970, 2,500 books published. 1980, um, university presses published about 4,000 new titles. 2,000, 9,000 new titles. 2012, 12,000 new titles. 2014, according to the homepage of the AAUP, 14,800 new titles. That is um, about a six-fold increase from 1970. Okay, so Pache, the claim made in the Luminos video about declining numbers of monographs, and that New York Times article I read was published in 1996. Okay, um, so admittedly, not all of these books are scholarly monographs, but almost all of them are, right? Some uni university presses have moved into trade publishing, but the monograph remains the, the, the core, okay? So in other words, there has never been a time when more books were being published by university presses than today, and I would add, amidst what always ends up being a somewhat gloomy narrative, I've never published better and more interesting lists than, than I'm publishing now. Okay, so meanwhile, what has happened to the per title sales? Um, by 2000, um, and this is the first um, number part we'll get to, um, by 2000, the apportionment of library acquisitions budgets had actually reversed completely so that it was now 70% serials and 30% books, crossed completely. Um, the 2011 statistics from the Association for Research Libraries um, which is what this comes from, um, which still reported monograph versus serials expenses, um, expenditures separately um, in 2011, um, showed a median closer of 80% serials and 20% books. Um, they've since changed the categories of reporting, um, and this handout is from the 2012-2013 um, report. So. Um, my question there is where is the monograph um, versus the serial and of course serials publication has moved very successfully resolutely to um, an online environment and I think pretty much what we're seeing there is the one-time resource purchases which is the third column from the right, the um, fourth column from the right um, are the monographs and the ongoing resource purchases are overwhelmingly the serials and you'll see that that maps pretty much directly onto this 80%, 20% split if you look at the, the median figures. Okay. Okay, now turn, turn over to, to this graph here. Okay, and I'm going to run through this quickly and um, you can analyze it afterwards and see whether I'm playing with the numbers. But between 1986 and 2011, which is what this 
um, ARL statistics shows or graph shows. Libraries increased their overall materials budgets by 302% within this serials expenditures rose 402%. Monograph expenditures rose only 71%. Now as monograph costs went up by 99% in that period, we're actually looking at only and this is where I think my, my math holds, a 10% increase in the numbers of books sold at a point when between 86 and 2011 we had increased our total output by 300%. Okay? So in other words, sales per title have declined, continue to decline to a level that would have been unimaginable in 1970 as fewer resources have to be spread over a much, much wider area. We're publishing six times as many books, yet losing a huge amount of ground. Um, consequently, print runs continue to shrink. Um, as print runs shrink, prices go up because the things that determine the cost of a book are, of course, its length. Right, the longer the book, the more expensive it is, but also the print run. The smaller the print run, the you know the greater weight each copy needs to to carry um, in recouping the publishing, the fixed publishing costs. Okay, and as as you know, print runs go down, prices go up. We kind of get into a spiral where sales sales continue to suffer. Okay, so the missing link in in this pretty dreary narrative is where all of these books came from, where all of these increasingly hard-to-sell monographs came from. And the answer is that they came from the people in this room or the predecessors of the people in this room. Um, and, and this increased number is tied directly to another crisis, and that is the crash of the academic job market in the early 1970s, when it, you know, seemingly overnight, um, everybody who had a PhD and even a whole bunch of ABDs were just pretty much guaranteed a job. You know, somehow, you know, people woke up in, in you know, the spring of 1973, and that was no longer the case. Um, the job market crashed. It's never recovered. There have been better years. There have been worse years, but it's really never recovered. So just as we, the publishers, were finding ourselves in the midst of a crisis and in purported need of more books to publish, so academics were under new and extreme pressures to publish earlier, more often, if they wanted to have a chance to enter, prosper, move upward in the academy. Okay? The, um, I, I, I looked up once where the, the phrase publish or perish came from, and apparently, um, according to what I saw online, right? It must be true. I mean, it originates in the 40s, but it really gains um, most currency like post-1970, right? When publish or perish really became the regime. Okay, so where are we now? Okay, what's clear that we're in the fifth decade of a bubble economy in scholarly publishing, and the big question is whether the bubble is going to burst. Um, and my big question as a university press editor is um, what does the future look like for legacy university presses? Um, so let me add now a fourth um, and a like, thoroughly um, obvious proposition to the four that, that I gave earlier, which is there is a fundamental misalignment of supply and demands plural, in the marketplaces. Um, I happen to be reading right now this kind of obscure 1956 book called The Spring List, a lighthearted novel about book publishers by a distinguished member of the breed. And the hero is a very dyspeptic um, um, publisher at a, at a um, literary publishing house. But he, he says, 
publishing was a mugs game, better, far better to manufacture and sell soap, which at least people needed and bought, presumably regularly and in large quantities. And I would say the, the mugs game here um, is that in scholarly publishing, um, people need the books, but they're not buying the books, okay? Um, so we're publishing more books than ever before because scholars continue to be under huge pressure from the Academy, capital A, to do so, um, in spite of various proposals to the contrary. Um, the peer-reviewed monograph with a print option still remains the necessary credential as university presses play proxy roles in tenure promotion and hiring cases. We didn't set up the systems. We're not the ones that are perpetuating it, um, and we really don't love when like the bare reality of that situation is 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 is, is thrust in our faces. Um, I had an inquiry um, just the other day from one of my authors who is coming up for tenure at um, a very prestigious and very wealthy institution, um, and she asked whether I could get her a PDF of her book because it was going to be the primary credential in her tenure decision and the department wanted to distribute the photocopies of it, right? So not even buy the books for the, for the tenure file. Um, and that's not the first time I've had such, such a, a query and, and, and I said no. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Okay, so while we, the presses, have an unabating demand for monograph manuscripts, members and would-be members of the professorate continue to demand our publishing services, there seems to be ever-decreasing demand on the part of libraries, and I have to add individual book buyers, um, to buy the books themselves. Presses are increasingly squeezed into an untenable position. Our existence and our activities are acquired by the structures of the academy, even as the academy, in the form of the libraries themselves, under hugely increased financial pressures, some of them, of course, of our own making, because we're publishing so many books, can no longer support us as they once did. Okay, so I'm under no illusions that if the Academy changes its protocols and requirements for publication, the presses will contract, possibly to 1970s levels. Um, stronger presses will survive, weaker presses will be winnowed out. Um, with the disappearance of the tenure and promotion books, we would continue to see those books written by authors who have the kind of intellectual drive to, um, to write and publish, and we wouldn't see those books that you know, miraculously appear as submissions when somebody is in the sixth year of their assistant professorship um, and then come again usually, you know, six to eight years later when, um, I don't know, the driveway needs resurfacing and, you know, you know looking for, for a bump. Um, in salary, and, and I, I do want to make clear that in... Um, giving the somewhat cynical assessment of books that are written to meet tenure and promotion requirements. I'm not judging those books. I'm not, that's not a, that's not a judgment on their quality. You know, there are many extraordinarily fine books that are written under those circumstances. I'm simply saying they probably wouldn't have been written were it not for those professional requirements, and we wouldn't see those ever again. Okay. Um, Okay, getting back to the notion that presses are fundamentally um, reactive, um, 
I say up to this point, we've been no more likely to introduce sweeping changes in the mode of publication than we are to drive the intellectual direction of the fields in which we publish, and we're not going to be changing the tenure and promotion protocols of the academy. Um, now, for years, one of the things we've been fretting about is the shift from print to digital publication. Um, and now we find, now that everything we do is being published simultaneously in print and electronic editions, we realize on the one hand we still haven't figured out the financial repercussions of digital publishing because it's very different. I mean, electronic books can either be sold at a hugely greater discount than the print books, or they can be marked up because their value enhanced, because they're multi-user um, products. So we haven't figured out the, the, the economics. Um, but what we do realize is that digital publishing as we have done it, we, the university press community, for the most part, it's been no big stretch for us. What we've been producing are essentially conservative electronic editions with very few exceptions. Um, in regard to ebooks, university presses have been more concerned with sales and marketing matters than with developing innovative digital platforms or enhanced content. These are, as I call them, dumb ebooks, essentially identical to their print editions. Okay? So, and though the marketing mechanism for our digital editions differs from that in place for our print products, they are still, if you wish, products for sale and distribution of which we somehow maintain control. Okay? And I have to say, the sales at this point are not huge. Um, it's our our, our ebook sales are about 13% of, of our revenues. Um, the rest is print, and that's pretty common among the university press community. Um, all right, so if the shift from print to digital was nervous-making, it's also increasingly clear that the print-electronic divide, as we in the university press community largely conceived it, let me underline that, is not the biggest issue facing the presses or the scholars that we publish. Um, because, of course, digital publication is a key and perhaps the key component of what is shaping up to be a huge shift in the landscape of scholarly publication and a huge challenge to the presses as we know them um, because we are in a moment um, where the confluence of three interrelated factors seem to be coming together to shift things into a very different territory. One is the open access movement, um, which cannot exist, could not be understood without the second um, digital humanities, or as I say, the digital humanities juggernaut, um, which is filled with innovations that are coming from faculty and researchers. And third um, is, and this is for me quite dicey, the mounting at universities and colleges of faculty research on scholarly commons sites generally managed under the umbrella of some sort of office for scholarly communication or publication, often administratively located in the library, okay? Also, at the same time that many presses are being moved administratively, administratively under the library umbrella, okay? So although the discussion must, of course, be nuanced, the agendas of the legacy presses and the digital humanities and open access folk have too frequently been in opposition to one another, and the rhetoric on both sides, and here I'm also bringing in some of the libraries, has at times been dispiritingly aggressive in recent years. I've, I've not been innocent here, um, but of course I tend to focus on and feel hurt by the salvos being lobbed over from the other side, and you see how easily 
recently I've just slipped into um, belligerent rhetoric. Um, but let's take um, the hostility voiced toward scholarly publishers um, that fails to make a distinction between privately held, profit-making Reed Elsevier's of the world and the nonprofit university presses. Um, and let me quote a um, report by Jennifer Howard that appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education in 2013 on the adoption of an open access policy um, for all article-length publications by faculty members of the university. University of California system. Okay, and Howard reported, one section of the announcement reads like a shot across the bow. See, I'm not the only one doing it. Like a shot across the bow of the scholarly publishing industry, the new mandate, and this is a quote from um, the position, signals to scholarly publishers that open access in terms defined by faculty and not by publishers must be part of any future scholarly publishing system. And let us also consider how libraries have described their mission as they've shifted positions, taking steps to move from being the treasure houses of content to being its creators, or at least its publishers. Um, various consortia have been formed to share information, resources on publishing, the most important being the Library Publishing Coalition, or LPC, of 50 large university libraries. Okay, and their mission statement reads, our goal is to explore how to better serve the scholarly communication needs of the academic community through sustainable, innovative library publishing solutions aligned with institutional missions. And let's get back to that a bit later. It goes on to state, we recognize that library and other nonprofit publishers have common interests and concerns. We believe that a coalition that facilitates sustained dialogue among university and college libraries, university presses, scholarly societies, and other mission-related publishers enables us to respond to changes in the scholarly communication ecosystem more quickly and efficiently and in innovative ways, which is all good. Um, I begin to worry a little bit with the, with the statement as it continues, quote, generally library publishing requires a production process, presents original work not previously made available, and applies a level of certification to the content published, whether through peer review or extension of the institutional brand. Okay, that's coming back again. Um, Okay, now off these websites there, as I say, in the early, earlier years, a couple of years ago, there was, there was really some pretty, inflammatory, um, some pretty inflammatory positions attributed to, to librarians. Um, one person quoted when asked whether the LPC, the Library Publishing um, Coalition, would seek membership in the AAUP, um, was quoted as responding, why should we there our enemy? Um, okay, except they're not the enemy, we're not the enemy at those places where the university press has become a division of the university library or as has happened recently, um, including Temple University where the head of the press is now, this is his her title, executive director and library officer for scholarly communication, okay, um, or the University of Michigan Press, um, mission statements say states, the University of Michigan Press is a vital component of UM Libraries Michigan Publishing, which is the primary academic publishing division of the university. We champion the library's research and scholarly communication missions through our global digital and print publishing distribution programs. Or um, from Indiana University Press, 
from the webpage of Carolyn Walters, who's the dean of the university libraries. Quote, most recently, Provost Lauren Robel appointed Carolyn as the first executive director of the Office of Scholarly Publishing, which includes the IU Press and the IU Libraries Digital Publishing Programs, IU ScholarWorks. Under Carolyn's leadership, the office is seeking to support and strengthen the acquisitions and editorial excellence of the press and provide publishing-related services to the IU community and beyond. The IU Press recently relocated from off-campus to the Wells Library. Um, that, I might add, is a move that coincidentally coincided with the decision by the long-term director of the press to retire. Okay. Now, in truth, the absorption of presses into their university library systems and the placement of these presses in positions parallel to the open access scholarly common sites at these same institutions has had little effect to date on the actual editorial mix of the books and authors that the presses are publishing. Still, the administrative rhetoric used to describe such moves, whether coming from the office of the provost, the librarian, or the director of the press, all move in a single direction, which is to reinstate the connection between the publisher and its host institution that existed before what we might call the golden age of university presses. The institutions may or may not succeed in convincing the faculty to publish with their own legacy presses, but that may also be beside the point if, as I assume, they're betting that the old-style presses are past their prime and that the real energy is shifting toward the institutionally-based open access apparatuses. The hope, and I think it is well-placed, is that open access and these institutionally-based offices of scholarly publication will free us from those commercial constraints that even nonprofit university presses have faced. Monographs on single authors, local studies, works on texts in less frequently studied languages or regions, and that's a big lacuna in, in university press programs, um, works, um, translations, editions, works of great length that we can no longer afford to publish, conference volumes, proceedings. Okay, all of these will become more feasible and all of that is good, right, um, in, in the institutionally based um, publication. Um, but I will add that if presses have avoided such publications, it's not been out of conviction, but again, because we're following the market and the market has not been there to support um, these publications. Okay, so given that, and I think that, you know, it's a, it's a good hope, um, there's, there's much to, to recommend here. Um, question is, why am I depressed? Um, okay, now there, there is a concern that's a, a matter for another day that by placing um, their work on institutionally based open access sites, employee faculty members, employee faculty members may be ceding proprietary rights to their own scholarship, undermining their academic freedom, but that's a matter of discussion for another time. So let me worry instead about how in the name of opening up channels of publication through these open access initiatives, institutionally based, and again this is the key figure, institutionally based offices of scholarly communication may well end up restricting access and privileging those authors who are employed at those places with the greatest institutional resources. For if information wants to be free, publication in whatever form, form still costs a lot of money, okay, and not everybody will be able to do it well bigger places, wealthier places will, okay? So think too of the Library Publishing Coalition's mission of extending the institutional brand. 
Okay, in the name of fulfilling the promise of open access to democratize knowledge, will we actually end up reinforcing institutional hierarchies that are already in place, right? Prestigious institutions will have prestigious offices of scholarly communications, and they'll be able to do it well, right? So this is a case that's also been made about MOOCs, really, that they, they reinforce hierarchies rather than break them down. So do we run the risk of closing down routes of upward mobility in an academic ecosystem in which it has long been the case that many people are unable to find employment at institutions commensurate with their accomplishment or, for that matter, at any institution at all? Okay? And with this in mind, I turned to another press's catalog. This happens to be the Harvard University Press catalog from spring of 2014 to look at where their authors came from. Okay, so a lot of the authors in the Harvard catalog, and Harvard is, you know, pretty much, you know, we look up to Harvard. It's one of, of course, one of, obviously, the great university presses. Okay, um, so a lot of the authors come from major research universities, including Harvard, but also Yale, Cornell, Columbia, Johns Hopkins. So major research universities that have top-tier presses of their own. Okay, then there are a lot of authors who come, or a number of authors who come from excellent universities that don't have a press or a press not commensurate, commensurate with um, the status of the institution. So Washington University in St. Louis, Brown, Notre Dame, Vanderbilt. The authors come from foreign institutions, the Paris School of Economics, Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol. They come from small liberal arts colleges that would not be able to mount a publishing um, Endeavor, right? Kenyon, Colby, Grinnell. They come from institutions considerably further down the pecking order. Xavier Chapman, Western Carolina University. And they come from somebody identified simply as an independent scholar, um, somebody else who's identified as an employee of the U.S. State Department. So now that kind of access, that openness, um, that ability to enter the channels of publication is something that I think is crucially important, is I think one of the great accomplishments of the university press um, and something that we need to preserve in any new system that takes the place of the university press. So I, I, I would like to close now, and in closing I'd like to return to the California Luminos Initiative, which offers a very different model from um, this institutionally-based model. Um, I am, in fact, highly skeptical of the program. Um, I think there's a lot that's laughable or infuriating about it or simply wrong, and not just the cartoon um, that we saw. Um, it lies about the declining number of monographs being published. I think we've demonstrated that. It assumes that every author will have easy access to the required 7,500 minimum she or he must bring to the table, and it puts a shamelessly happy spin on the fact that in contrast to the university press system it seeks to replace, this is an entirely subsidy-based form of publication and therefore, it's one that also privileges the haves over the have-nots. Um, it happens, uh, what it doesn't say in the video, it, it, it also happens to privilege people who are on the faculty of the University of California system because their requirement is only $5,000 rather than $7,500. Um, okay, you need to go to the FAQ um, 
on the Luminos site to learn that you'll pay more if you want a custom design jacket, um, that the Codex version of the book is print on demand. You know, there's this whole list of options um, that you're going to pay for, and, and they, they do indicate that with the, the electronic things. Um, and it all goes by so quickly that you may miss um, the kind of Ponzi scheme elements of a financial model based on questionable assumption that in this free and open access world, libraries are paying a voluntary subscription fee of $1,000 a piece. Um, and their proposal is to publish 10 books in the first year. So that's actually $100 per book. And this voluntary open access um, information wants to be free, you know, like a bird. Um, okay, as well as they're going to purchase, um, they're, they're going to purchase hard copies of, of the books. Okay, okay. Still, there are things um, that I want to say. I think Luminos gets right. Um, it is right, first of all in recognizing um, that a program that has a name that sounds like an antidepressant and a promotional video that looks like a commercial for antidepressants is hitting the right chord. Uh, and one of, one of my greatest regrets this evening is that in the interest of time, and I know I'm running out of it, um, I have not shown the companion video for Calabra, um, which is the journal's publishing program, also has a wonderful pharmaceutical name. Um, but in the Calabra, the Calabra video, I, you, you have to see it to believe it, um, it is an artifact of drought-stricken California. Um, was, there's a young woman, cartoon woman, and again, there are the flowers and the happy voice, and the young woman is trying to get access to a lake or a sea or some body of water, and there's a fence in the way. And she's, you know, able to break down the fence, right, which is now starting open access. And so she then walks to the shore, and there's all of this water. And then, um, this is all animated, a young man of color, like, walks to the shore, because he's now able to get in. And a young Asian woman is able to walk. And it's all inclusive, but it's all about water. Um, and people are like able to able to, to get the water, and the really good ones, right, are the, the the people who will then pour the water back into the source, which is you know the open access fund, right? So, okay, you have to see it to believe it. Okay, okay, but the Luminos um, video. What, what does Luminos get right? It recognizes that there is no free lunch and it, remain, it retains an investment in professional levels of editing, production, marketing. It retains peer review, um, which is something that I still haven't figured out how um, internal, institutionally-based open access sites are going to handle that. So it retains peer review, and it retains peer review without any upfront costs equivalent to an article processing charge. Right, which is quite contrary to um, the, the collaborator. Whether your article is accepted or not, you pay something like $750. Okay, it offers the possibility for digital enhancements, and that's something that the university presses we've missed the boat on, right? Um, in their electronic forms, these books will do things that print codices um, and the overwhelming majority that, of university press ebooks can't. They are going to be smart ebooks of the sort that we haven't been producing. 
Okay, and although I think the business model it presents is flawed, at least there is a model um, that will, if things were actually to work, allow this to be a self-sustaining program, as opposed to all the other open access initiatives that the university presses have largely, have recently announced. Um, there have been a handful of them. They're all dependent on Mellon grants due to expire in five years, and you know, there just doesn't seem to be any planning beyond that. Okay, and most importantly for me, um, the Luminos um, model is a third-party publishing model rather than an inside institutional job. And that, again, I think is one of the most important things to keep in mind, think about um, as we move forward. Um, so the question, will university presses exist as we know them today in another 20 years? I don't know, uh, you know, again, I think they will, but I think there'll be fewer of them, and I think they'll be smaller. Um, what I'll say in closing is that if they are uh, wholly superseded by institutionally-based offices of scholarly communication, much will be lost, and much of that is, is in the avenues of accessibility and open access of a different sort um, that the university press system has, has provided so well. Um, and you know, I, I find myself wondering um, whether the ideal locus for new model of publication is, you know, neither with the university presses nor with individual colleges or universities, but with the professional associations that are kind of floundering about trying to, to find out what, you know, what their purpose really is. You know, the Modern Language Association, the American Historical Association, um, and their membership base, and the financial resources um, that these, these societies have. Um, and could they retain much of what's good in the current system by adding all that's appealing and really very exciting in the new digital and open access world? Um, I think it would be great and the challenge is for um, the next generation of publishers to figure that out. So, so I thank you very much. Or two. Um, I guess there and there. Yeah. Uh, does anybody ever survey to see whether people actually read serious books in digital form? Uh, you know, I. Uh, I think depending on what your agenda is, you'll give a different answer to it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what I can say is, I mean, it. it it's presumably to some extent generational, not to be. You know, too cliched, but you know, presumably younger people are more comfortable reading um, digitally than older people. Um, again, I can say that overwhelmingly university press books at this point are read in print form rather than in digital form. But I don't know. You know, there you know, there there are, of course, all of the. Um, studies that purport to show that you absorb less when you're reading um, electronically than when you're reading print. Um, you know, it's also the dirty secret, you know, we all know that most monographs are not read from cover to cover. People are dipping into them. They're reading a single chapter or just looking for what they're looking for 
um, and obviously the you know the find functions of of a, of a digital file are superior for that than than of a, of a printed codex. So I don't know. I think the the as far as I know, the jury's still out. Yeah. You made reference in passing to print on demand. I'm yeah. wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. I was not familiar with that concept until about five years ago when I ordered a University Press book uh, through yeah. the University of Virginia bookstore, as a uh -huh. matter of fact. Uh, and it came as a print on demand. But yeah. Actually, it might have been the university. It was a David, about David Walker's appeal. I don't know if it was University of Pennsylvania or Penn State. And then more recently, I've ordered books from Oxford Press from their sale catalogs, and they have come in as print on demand. And they look to me as not exactly somebody in the back room copying things on a Xerox machine and then gluing them together, but maybe a cut above that. Yeah. And I was expecting a little better quality. So, so you could tell. And were these hardcovers or paperbacks? Paperbacks. Yeah, see, I actually think the paperback artifacts are pretty good, and you know, I congratulate you for noticing the difference. The, the type is a little less sharp, um, but you know, they're glued the way all paperbacks are. The covers, at least the ones that we produce, are they're good. They look just like the, um, the, the, the conventionally printed paperbacks, where the big difference in quality is, is in hardcover, um, where the binding is really crummy. Um, you know, the, um, the supplier that we use gives us a choice of you know, two colors, and the die stamping is horrible, and it's glued rather than sold, and it's sewn, and the spine is, is flat, and it's, it's a really pretty shabby um, artifact, but I have to say I'm always surprised by how few people notice the difference, including authors of the books often. Um, <laughs> You know, I worry, or, or I'm, I'm saddened by the, 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 the falling off in production values. Our designers at the press are much more saddened than I. Um, Print-on-demand, though, is um, it's a huge part of, of, of our business these days, and it's a, it's a beneficial part. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, those books that are published initially only in print-on-demand editions, and there are a lot of them. Um, generally, I would say uh, if a press is publishing everything simultaneously in hardcover and paperback, and there are some university presses that are still doing that, and you'll notice that the hardcover is, is very, very expensive, very much more expensive than the, the paperback. You know, I'm sure that those are print-on-demand things that are being you know, made available if a library wants it, but they're really counting on the sales being paperback. Um, but what print-on-demand has enabled us to do, basically, is, is to allow books never to go out of print. You know, in the old days, you ran out of stock, and um, you know, if you could not predict, uh, let's say, three years of selling you know, 750 copies of the book, that is you know, was pretty much the minimum offset print run, if you couldn't predict that, you would let the book go out of print. Um, now, with print-on-demand, you know, you're selling 75 copies of the book each year, you're still selling 75 copies of the book. You could never afford to reprint it in the old days, but you can make it available on an on-demand basis um, and never, never, never need to declare it out of stock. And um, you know, one of the things I was outside the um, purview of, of this talk, um, one of the surprising things that's been going on um, is that paperback sales, um, university press paperback sales, have fallen to a level that I guarantee none of you can begin to imagine. Um, you know, books that sell robustly by 
our standards in hardcover, we put into paperback, um, and um, you know they don't even sell 100 copies over over a three-year period. Some of them, um, the paperback market has as just the bottom has dropped out of it, except for books um, that have course adoptions. Um, so overwhelmingly, the paperbacks that we're doing now are print-on-demand um, rather than conventional runs. Or the format is not is not supporting conventional print runs anymore. How, who puts the... The Luminous, well, the Luminous is... Um, it's the University of California Press. Um, what's not clear from the video, and I don't know if this will actually be the case, it was their proposal for doing all humanities publishing, right? All of their literary studies books were going to be Luminous books. Um, they say they're going to do the, the peer review as they would do for a print book. That is, um, they'll send it out to, you know, anonymous readers who will, who will give their reports. And, and Luminos is not going to accept every book that is submitted for publication. Um, my question, as I, as I alluded to very quickly, is with um, things coming out through um, institutionally-based offices of scholarly communication, um, it seems that the assumption is that you know, you're a faculty member, you've written something, you're going to post things on that site, and there is no um, process of peer review built into that, and and you know I, I can't even logically work out what the uh, you know what the selectivity regime would be, right? I think it you know I think it's not a part of the of the quotient, right? Um, but no, I mean the Luminos claims that it's going to be just like any other book, um, just like any other book published by the University of California Press in regard to peer review, editing, marketing, so forth. With these university presses, it seems like they're both nonprofit organizations, yet at the same time the university wants them to be self-supporting. What kind of problems do you have with trying to well, again, I mean, some universities want the presses to be self-supporting and, you know, give mandates to their presses to be self-supporting. And, you know, it has been the case that the largest of the presses have been self-supporting. Indeed, some of the largest of the university presses, for all intents and purposes, you know, can look like trade publishing houses. Um, the smaller the press, the fewer titles it publishes, generally um, the more subvention um, they need, but yeah, I mean, from time to time, a, a university administration sort of not not on board with the fact that this is a subsidy-based model of publication will say you need to to earn your way. Um, you know that said, um, you know the pen subvention you know is the one I know best, right? We our subvention is about um, equal to about ten percent of our operating budget, um, and you know we would be hard pressed to do without that. But as I say, it's relatively little money for for the university. Um, if we were to have serious shortfalls year after year, the university would be um, distressed, I'm sure. Um, a number of presses have 
you know, have worked out business models saying, well, look, the, um, the monograph business is not supporting us. We need to have ancillary um, businesses. Um, so warehousing and fulfillment are um, Johns Hopkins' very big warehousing and fulfillment operation. Johns Hopkins also not coincidentally had, has one of the largest journals publications programs. And um, it's not that journals are like huge cash cows, although, you know, people look, again, talk about journal subscriptions, costs in the tens of thousands of dollars for some of the SciTech journals. That's not the case for, for humanities-based journals. I think our, you know, our most expensive journal subscriptions may be $150 a year for institutions. Um, but journals' revenue is very predictable. Um, and um, so that's another, another place where they can, they can kind of smooth the, the bottom line. But yeah, I mean, if a university wants its, its press to be self-supporting, then there, there's a serious miscommunication, especially these days when, um, when, again, market conditions have deteriorated hugely at at a time when, again, the academy is you know, requiring our services. Um, and then I think, yeah, I have passed you over. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it is indeed. And, you know, I have to say from the press's point of view, um, you know, one of the things that we have counted on in making our backlists available as ebooks is this kind of windfall revenue of libraries buying up the digital collection, whether or not they have the print editions as well. And it, it's you know, it's perfectly analogous to, uh, I don't know, music companies, you know, at the point when LPs were giving way to CDs, everybody reissued their backlists and CDs, and there was this um, this blip in, in revenue, but it, it was, again, not at all sustainable. It was a kind of one-shot infusion. Um, you know, I have to say, with the e-books... That has been the hope. It has been the result to some extent, but not nearly to the degree that we were all predicting it would be. Um, is there time for one more? Uh, the last one. Could you speak louder?
you would attribute to the lack of distinction between the sciences publishing, which seems to kind of overwhelm the open access discussion, and your own publishing, as you mentioned, and the kind of absence of humanities publishing and, and the discussion of, of the differences there. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that I'm answering precisely your question, but yes, it's it's hugely important to to note that um, the anger against scholarly publishers, the you know first big moves toward open access and toward instituting open access policies for faculty to make their their work available open access was at MIT. Right, um, and it's a kind of model and rhetoric that, um, as you say, it, it originated with with anger at SciTech publishing, um, and um, has just bled over to um, discussion of again nonprofit publishers and humanities publishers, and and that's you know for me has been one of the the most distressing. Um, Things, um, you know, I have to say that that I, I, I do think that the discussion has been getting more nuanced. Um, you know, I've, I've yeah, you know, I've given different versions of of some of this material over the years, and um, yeah, the hostility was at a much higher level, I would say, two years ago than it is now. Um, so that's good. You know, people are sorting out issues. Yeah. So. The annual subscription to the journal Brain, which is the journal of record in the neuroscience field, is $19,000 per annum. That'll concentrate your mind. The books that are flying might divert our attention from the substance of what Jerry has been talking about, which is not just a question of what books are going to be available in the library, but of the structures of the academy and the ways that we think about the organization of humanistic knowledge in the decades to come. Please join me in thanking Jared. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank you all very much. Please join us uh, at a reception in the Rare Book School suite. You are all most warmly invited. <laughs>